0: Hi everyone, data stories number 38, I'm Moritz. Hey Enrico, how are you doing? I'm doing great, and you? Cool, yeah, good, good, good. Having good time here. Summer. Enjoying, Enjoying summer. Enjoying summer. Enjoying the Enjoying World Cup. The World Germany Cup, Germany ah, come well. on,
1: stop it. Oh, that was a taboo, yeah. that was a taboo, <laughs> how, how is Italy doing? <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, sorry. Oh,
0: this will never end for Germans. It's always like that, they're always thinking about Italy. Uh-huh. But I can understand that, I can understand why. Yeah.
1: You can support the US team now, isn't that great?
0: it is fantastic actually. <laughs> yeah.
1: Let's hope the yeah. Macets pass this round tonight.
0: We'll see. You know, I lived a few years in Germany and that was fun, I can tell you. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I've been doing it for my whole life. Yeah, yeah you have an interesting way of, of watching games.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're like we're we're known for our playfulness, right?
0: Yes. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> okay, let's stop it
0: there. <laughs> let's stop
1: the national cliche It's still an open wound. Um, yeah, at least we're winning. I mean, just saying.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, okay, let's move enough on. Enough is enough. Enough <laughs> is enough. <laughs> we have a special guest today, Manuel Lima, on the show. Hi, Manuel.
2: Hey, guys. How's it going?
0: Hey, Manuel. Hey, great to have you here. Yeah, finally. It's, finally, after yeah, I mean, we've been chasing you for months, months, right? Decades. <laughs> months, months, I don't know. Decades, yeah. Decades, yeah. yeah, yeah. Decades, yeah <laughs> centuries, why not?
1: <laughs> it's the eternal fight. <laughs> <Yeah>. Exactly.
0: <laughs> so, um, usual intro, we ask our guests to introduce themselves, just in case somebody doesn't know Manuel Lima. Manuel, you want to say a few words about yourself?
2: Sure. Yeah, that's always the hardest thing, how to sort of uh, <laughs> characterize or introduce yourself. Uh, I guess I'm a designer by trade. Uh, I'm also an author, a uh, researcher. Uh, I do a bit of lectures, and I also teach about design and visualization. And uh, I also work as design lead, uh, UX design lead for uh, a startup in New York City called Code Academy. Mm-hmm. And that's about it. Wow! That's quite a lot of things. Quite a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> That's why it's so hard to like point out exactly what you do.
0: <laughs> How about maybe we should start from what uh, Scott asked on Twitter? How does it do it all? A lot, lot of, of coffee. A lot of coffee.
2: No, People it's. Swear uh, for
0: yerba mate. Do you try? Did you try that? Did I try what? Sorry. Yerba Mate? Yerba Mate? No, I don't. You know oh, yeah. Kind of so <laughs> <laughs> I haven't Not tried right. that one. Yeah, I,
2: I, I like to stick with coffee, you know, all <laughs> natural
0: products. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, so Manuel, you've done so many things. I don't know exactly where to start. Maybe <laughs> we should start from, from visual complexity, right? I think that… Sure. Many people out there know you for Visual Complexity, and that was a remarkable website that you started in uh, very early on. When when was it? 2000 what?
2: I started on, I think it was the summer of 2005. I started working on that. It was just after I graduated from uh, the Master of Fine Arts at Parsons School of Design uh, in New York. So, uh, yeah.
0: No, sorry. That's gonna be ten years soon. It's
2: that's crazy. gonna be ten years yeah, soon, crazy, exactly, huh? yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is in ten. Yeah. Wow. Actually, I've been talking about this. I was actually talking to Santiago um, Ortiz about this, of the possibility. And this is something like still fresh in my head but maybe doing something uh, next year, like mm-hmm. you know, the 10-year celebration of Visual Complexity and nice. who knows what could happen. And I invite all of you guys over. We can have drinks over it and then see some old projects, some relics from the past.
0: <laughs> <laughs> is it, it going to be in a rooftop?
2: <laughs> it better be, right? <laughs> it depends on yeah, the season. Yeah,
0: otherwise I cannot come. Yeah. I, I come only if it's a rooftop.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. exactly. And if it's a full week of celebrations. Yeah. Otherwise the flight is just too much for me. You know?
0: <laughs> it's not worth it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, please. <laughs> I, cannot, I cannot talk about other requests. That's. I'm going to ask in private. No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Very good. No, but I, I also remember your thesis. Yeah. So it was about... Meme tracking, which is I th- I think still yeah. a very interesting topic, and you were looking like how how stories spread on the on the web and you know the networks that you know and the trees that uh, occur when when people share stories. Yeah, so that's a very timely issue and has been quite uh, prophetic for your f- further <laughs> like the two books. I guess world, right?
2: yeah, I guess it was. I actually, to be honest, I fall in love with uh, with data visualization during that program at Parsons School of Design. Uh, and uh, actually, it goes back to like this diagram of a teacher of mine that showed us uh, during his... He was actually a very captivating uh, a speaker, um, um, Christopher Curran. But he showed us this diagram called the Understanding Spectrum by Nathan Shadroff. You've seen it. It's also known as the pyramid, the knowledge pyramid. It's how data transforms into information. Information leads into knowledge. And ultimately, knowledge leads into wisdom. And this was the first time I... I th- sort of started thinking about this deeply as, you know, what is our role as designers in this spectrum, right? And especially in converting information into knowledge and hopefully uh, wisdom in the end. Uh, And that stuck with me forever. And I think then, you know, towards my thesis, I I knew I wanted to do something related to visualization, at least that could explore the value and benefits of data visualization. And as you pointed out, Moritz, it was very much about memetics. It was trying to understand how the idea of, of words, uh, word of mouth, the idea of information diffusion, which is actually something that has been intriguing to social sciences for a long, long time. This way, for centuries, <laughs> now we can actually use the word centuries. But you know, with the internet, especially with the, blogs, the blogosphere, the blog space, uh, this sort of behavior, information spread from person to person became a lot easier to track. And the sort of the the, the most obvious sort of uh, uh, analogy we made in that process was how you know one specific topic you know starts being spread in one specific blog, and now it's sort of appropriated by other blogs who sort of retweeted and reposted, and this creates a huge sort of diffusion of that meme, right? It's the definition of memetics, uh, which for really me was very interesting, and I wanted to visualize that, uh, which. As you were saying, Maurice, is actually something that has been going... It's been constantly surfacing. Even recently, about, what, two years ago, I was actually involved in a project at Microsoft Research trying to do exactly the same thing, but in this case using Twitter, uh, seeing how, you know, someone tweets something for the very first time and then seeing how that meme, that piece of information spreads across Twitter, which is really, really fascinating, again, for social sciences uh, to understand. Uh, And then... During that process, I was trying to visualize this in the most meaningful way, and this is how my thesis uh, was born, uh, blog viz mapping the patterns of diffusion across blog space, uh, uh, and which I actually say is a website I, that I still maintain, even though I haven't done any changes at all uh, since I graduated, which you always, it's always like that sense of like, you know, I want to go back to it, I want to sort of expand, I want to improve it, but then you just never find yourself the time to do it. Uh, but Afterwards, you know, after graduating and after done the thesis, I was finding myself with a lot of time on my hands. I, was, I started working for RGA, which is a, a sort of the design, of digital agency here in, uh, in New York. And then all of a sudden, I have entire weekends with nothing else to do because I was used to like one full year of like hardcore work, uh, working on my thesis for school. So all of a sudden, I had like all this time in my hands, which was really uh, really kind of strange for the first time. In one year or so, uh, and that's you're why the first I man <laughs> I
1: meet who starts work at an ad agency <laughs> and says so like he has too much time. I on know, his
2: hands. I know. <laughs> which probably says a lot to how yeah, busy we were. Like,
0: maybe.
2: And then during that research, like one of the things that, that was really fascinating to me, like as I was trying to sort of understand the logic of the blog space. And our information spreads across the, the the particular network that comprises the World Wide Web. I was collecting all these really cool, interesting examples of networks uh, of people visualizing networks, but not just you know the web. I was collecting things like food webs, you know, computer systems, uh, social networks, uh, protein networks, biological networks, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. I was really trying to understand the variety of ways people are people using the variety of models and approaches people are using to visualize any type of network and i found that that research was like so interesting that i should probably open it up to the public and this is why in many ways visual complexity was born just straight after graduating from uh, from parson's just to open it up a lot of that knowledge a lot of that research to the general public and then of course i started expanding it considerably over over months and years
1: mm-hmm. So it was first your personal archive of of project references and then at some point you decided uh to to put it online
2: Exactly that's, that's nice. exactly that's yeah. yeah, yeah. great yeah yeah
1: Yeah and it's been a hugely popular resource I think on the web right like
2: yeah, I think it was I think At the time, there was not, as you probably, as you guys can probably recall, you know, ten years ago, there was not a lot of things online about visualization. I think uh, Infostatics had just came out, like maybe six months or a year before. Uh, There was no
1: flowing data.
2: There was no flowing data. There was no. I think Eager Eyes was not there yet. Maybe. I don't know. But a lot of the new blogs that uh, are you know, major references right now for the community were probably not there at the time. So I think that's one, I think, the reasons why infostatics and visual complexity were so important for people starting and sort of initiating themselves into this field to have that those points of reference of projects that have been made in the past, but also projects that people were involved all around the world in different areas, uh, you know, showcasing different styles and approaches and so on.
0: So I'm just curious to hear, how did visual complexity uh, evolve since when you started? So the vis- visual complexity, the way it is today, is it very similar to the way it was when you started? Or there was some kind of development uh, development through the what, years?
2: Yeah, quite similar. I mean, I remember one time I changed the design of the site a little bit, uh, just to be a little bit more friendly, just, just to show... Uh, sort of better resolution images up front on the homepage, and I think over time I just added more categories, more metadata to, uh, uh-huh, to all the uh-huh. projects. So now you can filter projects by in a variety of ways. You know, by the year they were created, by the author's name, by uh, by the tools that they are using, uh, by you know the general sort of theme or topic that they are sort of exploring. Uh, so that was, you know, most of the things that I added, and then I think slowly I added other categories like, you know, referential books that people might be interested in, um, and a few other enhancements, uh, and of course a blog at some point. But it does not really evolve that much. I think it was just like small additions um, over time.
0: Uh,, uh-huh, uh-huh.
2: okay. but of course, you know, as it it's been pretty hard as you guys can probably notice, and some people uh, who are watching us can notice it hasn't been updated very frequently since over I think maybe maybe actually probably since the book came out since uh, visual complexity came out.
0: Yeah, but I, but think I, reasons, I think that's yeah. fine, right? I mean,
2: yeah, I think it's fine because I think one of the things that was very positive for me was at least to kind of like minimize my sort of uh, pressure to always be posting stuff on visual complexity is that. Visual complexity in a way. Some people call it a blog, but I'd never thought of it as a blog per se. In the sense that you know you have this sort of um, bits of information that are always like chronologically organized, with the most up to date on the top, and then you just you really eagerly wait for the next post to come out. I think we never. I think I never sort of suffered that sort of pressure to like constantly put stuff out. Uh, uh-huh. It was always seen it as an archive, you know, that can grow yeah, and, yeah. and sort of uh, expand over time, but it's not sort of committed to like a given time frame for mm-hmm. it to sort of constantly... It's not sort of a
1: news site in any way. It's yeah. like you can also add an old project, right? And nobody Absolutely. will complain. Yeah, And yeah, I think that's I a done. great quality of the site, as also as compared to, let's say, Flowing Data or Infostatics, which have always followed the blogging model and then... Once you have a few hundred posts or so, right? How do you organize them, and how do you make that an archive as well? That's a very—it's a tough challenge. If you start off with this like constant output and the blogging model, and yeah, yeah, and I, I like how you always how you very early already saw it as an archive and just designed the whole site around that.
2: Yeah, and and to be honest, I have actually a list of things that I've been maintaining over the years and and adding to it over the years. A list of things that I want to do on the side, you know, enhancements I want to do on the side. There's a variety of ideas and things I want to expand upon, Great. but you know, time is always an issue. And I think over time, also the fact that this was never my full-time job, uh, you know, I got a little bit of money out of you know some some Google ads and and whatnot. But it's doesn't really like pay the bills at all. <laughs> anything, yeah, of course. You might pay for a dinner at <laughs> once a month,
0: you know? <laughs> so as everyone who ever attempted this knows very well. It's not exactly. as easy as, as it looks like. <laughs> exactly. Well,
2: but then you then of course we have you know the case of full time bloggers, you know, people that reach a threshold of like really, you know, in the order of like thousands and millions of, of, of readers. So when you reach that level, you can probably make you know, comfortable leaving out of the blog. And then, of course, the motivation to keep updating it and maintaining it in a in a, in a a proper way is an entirely different uh, game, right? I think that was never the case for me. So I think over time, we have a tendency to just, I wouldn't say abandon it, but leaving it in the periphery somehow. Yeah, yeah I think
1: yeah, yeah. I so mean, you have, right now, you have 777 projects. <laughs> Correct. So that's hard to, like, <laughs> to add one to that beautiful number. No, but anyways, exactly. I mean, there is only a limited amount of things you can do for the network, right? And I think probably, you know, you're covering the ground pretty well. So I don't <laughs> think there's so much pressure also to add stuff. I, I think it totally Yeah, yeah. yeah, you're right, you're right. I think, but to be honest,
2: like I was thinking about this lately, about, you know, reaching the thousand, you know, that would be the final mark. <laughs> that would be nice. And then, <laughs> yeah. 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 But reaching the t- 1,000 projects and reaching that, that milestone, Mm-hmm. Next year, in the summer of 2015, which is like the 10-year anniversary of the Oh, oh That would be awesome. Yeah. And then, awesome. Yeah, and then totally. like doing the party around that. Yeah. And then you know doing and then you freeze else. it forever. Yeah, exactly. Then it's like frozen in time, but at least it's always available. People, you know, get to sort of play with it. It's brilliant. Well
0: actually one
2: you of the things it. that yeah. Yeah, one of the things that's pretty hard actually about a digital archive, which could be a segue for like visual complexity, the book, is actually the amount of dead links over time that you start accumulating. I I don't know right now what is the percentage, but probably if you go to, if you explore all the projects on visual complexity, maybe, I would argue maybe 10, if not more, 10% or more are entirely dead links. You know, projects that have been sort of abandoned, people have like removed the URLs from the websites. There's a bunch of projects like that, which is very unfortunate and that's, but at least we got the thumbnail, so at least we have A very small uh, sort of visual representation of that project.
0: That sounds like uh, the kind of thing that you can try to outsource, to crowdsource and try to fix it, right? Yeah, Yeah, but some projects are actually
1: gone. So I also realized that. So I did for a few projects research on older stuff. And as you said, like a lot of the early stuff is actually gone. Like the domain is Uh gone or the whole, I don't know, they switch to a new system and the project isn't there anymore. It happens. Uh Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah, it happens. I mean, even recently, when I was doing my my second book, the book of trees, I was actually lo- trying to look for the project Ecotonoa. Uh-huh. You guys remember that one from uh, Yugo Nakamura? Yeah, the
1: nice it was, tree. It was. It was. Yeah, the nice tree
2: that you could yeah. post uh, sort of mass digital tree, and then the URL was gone. It was, it was actually sponsored, I think, by NAC, by uh, by uh, the technology company. Uh, and it was just like abandoned. It was just, you know, it was not in their own interest to maintain that website. Because as you know, like it it costs time and, and money to maintain a lot of those uh, those domains. And then people over time just don't see any value and then abandon it. And the unfortunate thing is that I guess all of us kind of lose part of that process, uh, us, you know, our species. Because a lot of those projects are really, you know, interesting cultural artifacts that reflect... Sort of the way of thinking of a given time of a given moment in time, and when you start losing a lot of that stuff, is is problematic because you don't have ways of retrieving it again, which is you know, you know, slightly concerning at least. Right, right. I mean, I don't lose like nights, you know, sleep nights over it, but still, it's something that has been very much of a concern for for
0: myself. Sure, sure. And I'm just curious to hear: Is there a reason why, you, from the very early? From the, uh, so when you started, you already focused on exclusively networks on visual complexity.
2: Yeah, I don't know what drawed me necessarily to networks. I think it was the, the maybe challenge. the fact
1: that everything's connected. Yeah, but <laughs> I, I, think, I think it
2: was also the challenge. Uh, yeah, exactly. Everything is connected and yeah, maybe I was actually, I, I probably know exactly what it was. I actually, I read uh, Barabasi's Linked uh, mm-hmm. even before mm-hmm. I started working on my thesis, right? It's
1: a dangerous read, yeah. Yeah, that was a really
2: big yeah. influence. So it was, like like Morris was saying, like the realization now every think is totally interconnected and interdependent. I think that was, and then I read, I think following that book, or even before that book, I read Emergence by Steven Johnson, which also mm-hmm. plays this idea of networks. It actually goes in deep into networks and interdependence and emergent behavior, all that. And I think I was really getting really so interested. But I think it was also, from a visualization point of view, was also, because it's probably the most challenging of every, every topic you might think about visualizing, networks tend to be the most complex one, the most yeah. harder to sort of decipher. Yeah. I think it was that element of, of difficulty that sort of engaged me. It's like, you know, I'm not so interested in like, you know, simple things. I'm, I think the <laughs> complex ones are the ones that, you know, makes you sort of engage and passionate and sort of like the strive for understanding. And I think that was really what sort of motivated me uh, the most about networks.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Just so a we- random thought, but did you know there's a German author who published a book called Visual Simplexity? I
2: heard about it. I heard about it. Like, yeah. <laughs> actually there was a there was a I think there was even a blog. There, there might even be a blog called uh, Visual Simplicity or something. Uh, but uh, it's, yeah it's an open it invitation
1: a for a fight, obviously. I mean
2: <laughs> Exactly. Maybe it's gonna be the 10-year anniversary we invite those and yeah, then have like yeah. a panel. Uh,
0: battle it out. <laughs> battle yeah. it out, exactly. <laughs> So Manuel, how did you transition to the book then? The book, well,
2: I think the book was, I was, uh, I think it was the motivation was really much what we talked about. Uh, I think at some point I realized that this archive was growing, uh, that people were, you know at least some people were interested in, in its contents, and uh, just the realization of a lot of these projects being gone as we were talking, right? A, a lot of URLs being sort of abandoned, domains being closed, uh, uh, servers being down, et cetera. And the realization that a lot of these interesting cultural artifacts, which they are, all of them, uh, in each different way is a cultural artifact, they were being gone uh, forever. And I think the the book came as an idea of uh, not just expanding sort of the audience of the website, which was growing, but still I think with a book you can reach you know, other types of audience, as other types of users that are interested in this type of material. And the second reason was, again, saving this material for posterity. Um, and I think it goes back to this uh, the, the realization of, I think I talked to Moritz actually about this, the, the idea of the digital dark ages.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. yeah,
2: So I don't know if you heard about this, Enrico, but the digital dark ages is something really interesting to me. It's, it's this, this theory of uh, this prospect that at some point in the future, we're going to look back uh, to the current time and not being able to sort of understand what we are producing, all the digital artifacts that we are creating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is not really hard, that art to imagine as you know, plugins keep on disappearing, you know, formats, file formats keep on changing, proprietary formats keeps on changing. So all of that is really not that difficult to sort of uh, understand. Again, a lot of these projects sort of vanishing from services and so on. So I think that's something that is, was definitely a concern to me. And the benefit of a book still in a printed format is that it can probably outlast by, by far any website that we create nowadays. Uh, it has this sort of like um, intemporal sort of uh, presence that a website, I think most websites will, be, will struggle to have uh, in many different ways. So I think uh-huh. that was you know, the ultimate sort of goal of like, putting all this material in a book that can, people can use, not just of this generation, but hopefully other generations in the future and look back at the kind of interesting work that we were doing uh, right now.
0: Okay so did you so I really want to understand so did you con- conceptualize the book as some sort of printed archive then so did you In a way, picture it, it, it is, as a yeah. as a way for people to just flip through the pages and 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 look at these images or, yeah, or or I mean, or you had a broader. I kind mean, of the, f- the first book especially
1: had a big text part to it as well. Yeah, right? that's, like, that's like a, my, the shit. attempt to sort of categorize all these different ways to yes. visualize networks and. Uh, reflect on, yeah, why 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 is, is it the age of that, networks and what does that mean and things like that. Right? Totally, totally. I think yeah.
2: that's a really good point. Th- that, that's a really good point, Enrico. And to be honest, I, I never saw it in Intali as an archive. And I think it was an opportunity to also reflect, as Maurice is pointing out, a little bit on the role of networks, you know, on the change that network is bringing, not just as as a visualization metaphor or model, but as a way of looking at, thinking about the world around us, right? So, that, sh- that sort of shift in this sort of paradigm shift in the way that we are understanding the world around us. And networks and network science is a great sort of drive for that shift. And I wanted to reflect a little bit upon that. But now thinking about it uh, after the book is done, I think I did the worst thing you could ep- ever do, which is you do a bit of a, of a coffee table book and <laughs> a lot of like heavy textbook, which is probably the worst any author can do in the sense that... Uh, So writing is really hard enough, right? And you spend a lot of time writing and, you know, putting your thoughts together and organizing it in a meaningful way. And then, and that's, you know, already a lot of work. And then if you decide to do just a coffee table book, then you lose a lot of time also like collecting images, you know, managing rights and permissions and all that, you know, cleaning up the images at times, all that, which is another huge chunk of work. So doing those two things in tandem for one single <laughs> volume it's it's a nightmare <laughs> especially because it was my first one and I didn't know all the shortcuts and any and the sort of the yeah, yeah. So that the processes to minimise amount of rework and so on. So it was definitely like looking at inside. It was a really, really hard. How long did it take
1: you? I remember you were working at Nokia at the time in London, right? Yeah.
2: Yes. Yeah. I I was working at Nokia at the time, and then uh, I got an invite to actually talk at TED Global in Oxford, UK. And then it was, as you guys can imagine, it was like one of the most sort of Mind-blowing experiences of my lifetime, and not just you know being there in Oxford, which is a, a, a sort of a city you know sort of heavy with history and knowledge and wisdom, uh, but also like being surrounded by all those minds and talking to all of all of those minds. So after that, I remember being on the train back to London. Uh, on that train, I decided to leave my job, my current well-paid, very comfortable job at Nokia, and uh, dedicate myself for six months writing the book uh, oh, wow. on my own. Yeah, that's yeah.
0: awesome. Cool.
2: And that's what I did. So the following Monday, uh, I <laughs> you know, went to my manager at the time in Nokia say, you know, I love working here. It's a great job and I love the work we're doing, but I would love to dedicate myself to like for six months just writing the book. And that's what happened. So. <laughs> it was uh, yeah, it was a really hard time as wow, as wow. my wife can attest to it was the <laughs> it was a really uh it was a really uh, tough uh, six months yeah
0: so wow. do you mean tough because it was a lot of work or because it was uh demanding from the psychological point of view or both <laughs> both, both both oh absolutely
2: yeah. both I think it was yeah. you know the pressure of not not knowing if what you're doing is the right thing yeah, uh, yeah. but also you know, it was my first book, so I don't know, like the editing part. I, I realized very naively at the time that the book, when it comes to the writing part, uh, has to be perfect. You know, like every single dot needs to be in place. Yeah, and of course, yeah. that's not the case. There's like three or four editing processes that happen afterwards. So I wouldn't say that you have to be sloppy in the first draft, but you can be. You don't have to be that perfectionist with the first draft. So. You know things like that you learn over time, and I think for the second book now it was a lot easier because I knew I knew a lot of these processes and sort of shortcuts. So it was tough because of that because I didn't know all that the, the shortcuts and just the amount of work was impressive. Just you know write the writing part, but also getting all the images and permissions, and it was really really time consuming. Uh, I think my email inbox is always for any book actually for both books. Is really really tricky. I have like flags of every color. I try to do like <laughs> color coordination and all of that. To try to somehow try and find order in the chaos of mm-hmm. my email inbox because it's really hard. Uh, just but again, without many of those auditors, you know, this couldn't really exist. So
0: yeah, and. I'm just wondering, so for, for, for your first book, for Visual Complexity, you, you've basically been using the archive that you already had on the website. Or you've been doing additional research there.
2: Oh, I did a lot of additional research, yes. Oh, okay. So I did, yeah, I mean, one of the, the sort of initial research that actually uh, became sort of the, the I, I guess, the building blocks for what ended up becoming my second book was was a research I did on on trees on mm-hmm. ancient trees and tree visualization, uh, which was my the first chapter of visual complexity right, which is right. called uh, which is called the tree of life so all of that was like entirely new uh, even the second chapter was fairly new. I think I had given a few lectures on that topic, but it was all about the paradigm shift between trees and networks and uh you know, for, for centuries, uh, even millennia, we have used the tree metaphor, the tree model, as a way of visualizing and explaining the world around us. From, you know, the areas of science to, uh, to how the brain is, operates, to how cities operate, uh, to, you know, religion, to sort of moral conduct, to systems of law, we have used this, this metaphor of the tree. And what's interesting is our networks are actually replacing the metaphor entirely in many of these topics, in many of these sort of areas of of of, uh, of human knowledge. So that's why I, I mentioned sort of this paradigm shift, and I need to introduce trees, and I had to introduce trees as a first chapter of the book to then provide a little bit more guidance towards the shift, and then expand deeply into networks. And I think that was the corpus of of uh, of visual complexity, the, the, the website on the following chapters.
1: Yeah. Okay. But still, you had to go back and make a project selection and get print-ready graphics. You know, in oh, addition yeah. to all this, this. Oh comes. yeah. Oh so I can totally see how that's. A, a, yeah.
2: A I think the, the hardest one work. was. Yeah, yeah. Totally. I think the hardest one was the, the taxonomy. I think it was on chapter five. You know, the syntax of a new language, which right. has been, I think, the most loved and the most sort of criticized by some people. Uh, which is always hard, you know, as any taxonomy, any sort of type of ontology that you want to create on any given topic, especially being the first, you're always going to you know, go through some holes and some problems. But, you know, it was an attempt of like trying to understand all the different sort of uh, models and visualization, visualization approaches and methodologies that people are using and try to organize and categorize them in a, in a meaningful way.
0: So did you have something, some some reviews before the paper was published?
2: No, it was uh, before the the book was published.
0: Yeah. Oh, Uh, sorry, what did I say? Paper? Yeah yeah, the yeah, <laughs> the yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> sorry the academic yeah was
2: good no i had i had some reviews afterward which was great i mean it was you know fairly well received i got you know reviews from the G- the new york times and and a few others uh so it was definitely well received and that people could realize the importance of this this discussion you know this this topic of of visualizing networks because it's still very present in many of the things we we uh, we address and think about on a daily basis. You know, when you think about, you know, political ties and sort of uh, networks of influence and, and in biology, I mean, network really pervades any sort of field we can think of. So it is so present and so important. And I think this book s- somehow contributed to that discussion and, you know, made people sort of reflect a little bit more, I guess, about the importance of visualiz- visualizing many of these um of these uh, of these territories and 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 platforms and and domains.
1: Yeah, and I think it, it opened like um, a whole new audience for this whole like, like this nerdy data visualization world because I think you managed so well to to bring in like the art aspect and the science mm-hmm. aspect and. And I think in the end, it worked out that it's both a coffee table as well as a theory book. You know, like yeah. from the end product, yeah. it might not have been the smartest thing, like for your like work-life balance, but I think for the book, <laughs> for the
2: book, it worked yeah, out. That so that's right? Yeah, that was good. That's yeah, something. that's a good yeah. point. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I
2: think actually probably my favorite chapter, and I think some people uh, say the same, was the chapter, the complex beauty chapter, which yeah, goes absolutely. deep into art yeah, yeah. and yeah. you know comparisons with fractals and right, Pollocks yeah. and... Yeah. And that one, that one was also really hard because you know how can you sort of try to explain, you know, if there is any sort of, sort of intricate sort of um, attachment in this sort of appeal for networks on a on a on a visual sort of emotional level, how can you explain that? Mm-hmm. You know, when you see like a great sort of network visualization, there's this, almost this intricate sort of visceral uh, appeal that it has on us as human beings. So how can you explain that? So I, I sort of pose a few sort of uh, theories on, on possible sort of theories on how to explain that inerrant appeal, you know, taking that to the work of Pollock and other sort of scientists and, so, and whatnot. So I think it was a really interesting sort of chapter. And also to see, again, this boundary between science and art and how many artists are being influenced by a lot of the visualization work we are doing as, you know, scientists, researchers and designers are, are right, doing. Right. So it is a very symbiotic process, which is really interesting to me as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Cool. So and and you hinted at it a bit, but in the end, I, I found it really funny that at some point you said like, and "Now I'm writing a book about trees," and I was like, "You were bashing trees in the first book. Like, you said this is the thing of the past. You know, it's gone. Totally. Nobody needs them anymore. We have cares about no. trees. <laughs> yeah, exactly." And then you were like, "Yeah, I might write a book about trees." <laughs> so how, how did that Why happen? Is it, was it like so, did you want to escape yeah, you from right. yourself or what's going on?
2: No, no. <laughs> No, no, no. Well, I mean, you're right, you're right. I mean, I was, I was bashing the threes not so much as, kind of visualization model, but as a way of understanding the world around us in the right. sense that, you know, if you think about uh, systems or or domains that are, you know, highly centralized uh, and dependent on that core of that CEO and that sort of centralized command, mm-hmm. and you think about this very, you know, hierarchical sort of processes Though I mean, all of us uh, involved in technology and sort of the new age, the new digital age, we realized all some of those concepts are already outdated. You know, it's more of a it's more about networks and you know decentralization and sort of flatten out the process because there's a lot of benefits that can come from that. Right. But still, it's it's in really interesting to me how trees were again used for centuries and millennia even as the Uh, visualization model of choice of like numerous researchers and authors and illustrators and so on Mm -hmm. so there's something really really appealing about trees at the same time that even though we are facing this paradigm shift there's something really again appealing to us at a very intricate level Uh, so I think the book uh, and because I did that introduction for visual complexity um, uh, the tree of life in the in the first chapter I think I immediately realized that this story was too beautiful, too powerful, too strong to be left to a single chapter on a book about networks, right? And I felt it was that chapter needed a whole volume and a whole entire book dedicated to that specific mm-hmm. uh, yeah. visual metaphor. And that's why, why it was born. I think it was, I think I want, you know, two reasons. I think was, one was really to tell this untold story because in many ways, you know, some people reference trees, and there's like other, you know, very philosophical books talk about tree as a metaphor and so on. But there's there has never been, at least to my knowledge, a dedicated book on this metaphor. One that covers, you know, so much, you know, space and time, uh, and so many different domains of, of knowledge. So that was a beautiful story story that I, had, I think had to be told, and that was my main motivation to putting the book together. Just again, telling this untold story, and tell it in a very sort of uh, pluralistic universal way, and then I think the second point that was very much the goal of uh, putting this book together, my latest one, the book of trees, was also to somehow oppose our present bias. You know, the idea of presentism, uh, which I think all of us are, you know, very eager to like open uh, our Twitter app and our, or our Facebook app and just you mm-hmm. know eagerly wait for the latest post. And I think <laughs> that could be fun, but at the same time it could be problematic because it somehow blinds us from seeing the big picture. And the big picture being all the stuff that happened in the past. And I think I wanted to sort of convey this sort of long history of, of information visualization. Mm-hmm. And I think if you look at most of the books that are written in this topic, they go probably, if they want to have, if they want to provide any sort of contextual sort of information, they go maybe as far as the 18th or 19th century as a foundation of information visualization. Right. right yeah. And and it's true, I mean, there's a lot of really interesting people back then that were doing a lot of interesting work. But I think it's really uh, unfair to think there was nothing else before that time. There mm. was just not a blank state. It's impossible to think that was just a blank state. So I think the, the book tries to sort of prove that, you know, this is not a new thing. I think it's too easy for us to think of visualization as this new discipline, you know, rising to meet the demands of, of the new century. Which uh, is very poetic, but at the same time not true. So, uh, so I think the book tries to sort of show this long evolution of, of visualization by, you know, through the, the, the through the lens of of the the tree uh, figure, through the lens of the tree uh, visual metaphor, mm-hmm. and and it's also like telling this meta narrative. This sort of what I think is really interesting for me is that if you look at many books on history, right, they concentrate either on a very sort of specific civilization or space, right? So ancient Babylon, ancient Rome, uh, 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 the Incas, etc. Or they focus on a very specific time, right? The 12th century, the 15th century, the age of enlightenment, uh, the digital age. But I think those books tend to suffer from being too self-contained, right? And so for me, those stories are interesting to a given point. But the most interesting stories for me are the ones that really traverse Time and space—they're mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the ones that really are narratives of narratives. You know, this matter, this idea of a matter narrative, mm-hmm. and I think the, the tree is one of those meta narratives. It's uh, again a, a model that again traverses time and space that has that you can find in any society across the world and, and almost any given point in time. So there's something really, really appealing about this, which again, had to be conveyed in uh, in a book. Sorry if I extended a little bit too long. No, no that totally is. makes no, sense. Okay. And I think it's yeah.
1: it's a great, a great perspective. And, I, and you're right. It's fascinating, not just as a visualization model, but actually because I think it's a tool for thought, like, you know, the whole tree model uh, is, yeah, it's a basic way of thinking. And with you, like, exploring all these connections in the past, we, we, we get to learn so much about how people thought in the past and yeah and I hadn't seen it well, from that way. Yeah, it's very nice Yeah,
2: well, as you are saying Maurice, it's actually it has if even influence the way we talk and communicate with each other. You know, when you say the bank opened a new branch or, <laughs> right. you know, you're gonna yeah. branch out to this new thing or yeah. the root of a problem. The root like, of the all problem those,
1: exactly.
2: Yeah. All those metaphors we use on a, on the well, even like, you know, biology yeah. is a branch of science. You know, all those metaphors we use uh, on a day-to-day basis, are based on that visual metaphor, you know, on the metaphor of of all these topics being organized as a tree. Uh, as you find, for instance, the idea of, of science or knowledge being organized as a tree uh, goes back to Ramon Lul, one of the the, the the Spanish schoolers, one of the schoolers that actually talk extensively on the book of trees because it was really the foundation of many of these concepts. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's really interesting how It's not just like a visual model to represent knowledge. It's really so ingrained in our brains and the way we think about the world around us and many of the the subjects we we like to sort of debate.
0: Yeah, and I think what is really interesting is that today we are so entrenched into this idea that visualization is about visualizing data and possibly Mm. a lot of data. But some of these examples show that actually visuals have been have been used for a long time just as a way to take some information that is in your head and put it out there so that you can see it with your eyes and 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 go through much deeper reasoning, right? And also, of course, for communication of important ideas. So I think that's, that's another interesting angle for... or things that you actually realize when you see these old images that are really, really beautiful.
2: Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing for me that if you... Bypass entirely this discussion about what is the right label to call our discipline. If you bypass that entirely, you're going to realize that you know the goals of all these people doing this magnificent work back in you know the 12th century or the 13th century. The goals, the motivations, were entirely the same mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. our motivations right now. They were trying <laughs> yeah. to like they were trying by means of visualization to you know simplify and clarify, you know, to provide insight, to educate an audience, to. Uh, To provide, you know, they were really like a lot of the metaphors that we're using, primarily the tree, were strong visualization metaphors and models to provide and to sort of solve the same problems as we're facing now. It's really not that different. Uh, So again, if you bypass all the idea of of nomenclature and what is the right name to call what we do, which is always like a tricky subject, uh, you find out that at least from a sort of purpose point of view, it's entirely the same. It doesn't yeah. it really change that much at
1: all. Yeah, yeah, but, but yeah, yeah. Here's a here's a practical question. How how did you find all these old graphic? Like, did you just yeah. type yeah. cool old tree <laughs> into Google and uh, take yeah. the first page? Or what, what, how do you do that?
2: That's really hard. Uh, so the the yeah, the new ones are fairly easy because I think all of us are exposed to like new projects that are coming out, and we know like the main ones that. Uh, you know that deal with trees or any sort of other visualization metaphors. The old ones, as you're pointing out, Moritz, is definitely one of the hardest. And I think, fortunately for you know researchers or curious researchers like myself, um, it's great. And the internet is providing this sort of new platform. And and seeing how many museums and galleries, like you know the British Library, the Library of France, the Spanish Library, uh, you know the Metropolitan Museum, a lot of these critical institutions are, are finally opening up their archives mm-hmm. uh, and putting all this material online and available for free for people to use and research, which is great. But that's just the beginning, right? So the beginning is you know, knowing what resources you can use. You know, A lot of those references, you know, like the British Library, for instance, has been a, an invaluable resource as well as, as the, 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 the National Library of France. But then it's also knowing what to look for, as you're saying, Maurice. Right, I think perfect. I had to like know how to spell tree in maybe ten <laughs> languages, you know, from German to <laughs> to Italian to Portuguese yeah. to Spanish to like every single language that could be important to retrieve that information. Right. And then sometimes even when you find the illustration, there's no more information about it. That's it. Yeah. If
0: yeah.
2: you're lucky, maybe there's like the, the ear, there's maybe the author, and then this is where the real fun begins, you know, like when the really sort of hardcore research starts, uh, trying to sort of find more information about the altar, about you know, his, his life or her life, about the context surrounding that person, you know, what was happening around him, uh, etc. It's just you know, historical research, basically, wow. yeah, yeah. Uh, to sort of like portray this, you know, why that person made this chart in such a way, the influences, and so on.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So you've been relying exclusively on digi- digital media? Or you've been also going to into places and looking at the original file, the original I, documents? I
2: did. But you know what? I think oh. it's, it's really, unfortunately, it's actually a lot harder to go to physical places, not just because of, you world but, yeah. but it's also like, it's just so lost in time. It's just like the processes, there's so much bureaucracy to like, even sort of requests, one of those ancient manuscripts, as a lot of Processes. I mean, I remember when I was in London and I was doing some research on that. I went to the British Library, which is, you know, uh, I think the second biggest library in the world. They have a lot of, a ton of really interesting material and old manuscripts. But it was just so hard to get it sent, and then you cannot copy it, there's nothing you can do because of course a lot of these materials are like extremely sort of valuable. Uh, it's. It was just a lot harder. So I think you can do that, uh, but I think you waste a lot more time in doing so. Uh, and that's that's therefore, uh, but again, before that was the only option. You know, fortunately now, a lot of these you know critical institutions are releasing to the general public a lot of this this material, which which is great for again people like myself interested in the, in a lot of this material.
1: Yeah, there's like a million images from the British Library and the Rijksmuseum and and in, uh, in Holland in, in the Netherlands has opened a lot of images. And yeah. I'm also still waiting until like really nice collections of historical like, illustrations and, oh, yeah. and diagrams and so on are compiled based on that, yeah.
0: So did, did you ever think about having exhibitions?
2: Uh, As it a big thing about like these old, yeah. I think I, yeah. I was approached by a few people. I think there was an idea of curating maybe an exhibit on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would definitely, I don't think it, why now that i try to think about i don't know why that actually never happened but <laughs> i think it could be something that that might, might happen in the future i think that would be great actually like That'd yeah be
1: fantastic yeah
2: yeah gathering a lot of these like real the real thing right yeah, like, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah and showcase it to people yeah that would be actually great yeah
1: yeah, there's actually two good connections. So um, uh, you know Michael Stoll, yeah. uh, the professor from Augsburg, he has yeah. a he has a huge collection of huge collection. like historical yeah. stuff. And I think if you would dig through his archives, um, specifically for trees and networks, there would be very like there could be a lot of stuff already. Nice, yeah. nice. Yeah. <laughs> huh. yeah.
0: Yeah. What excuses to have, to have fun? <laughs> 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 exactly. <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> So Manuel, and yeah. so you've been doing this thing for for a very long time now, right? Mm. So we just said that visual complexity started almost ten years ago. So I'm I'm curious to hear from you. I'm wondering if you feel like giving us a, a broad perspective on how you see this developing, right? So you've been mm. watching for for many years, and I'm sure that you've been seeing this thing developing, right? Mm. As I think it's the same for everyone here, and so do you have any thoughts about how this it was when you started how it is now? Do you think that everything that something important has changed since then, and how do you see this developing in the future as well
2: that's a good that's a good point i I don't know i i um definitely a lot of things have have changed right um and yes, since we were talking about this like ten years ago, that was not almost like maybe just you know a few blogs, you know, a couple of blogs uh, talking about this subject. And now you probably I don't even know how many exist out there. Some of them are actually very specific; they concentrate only one specific methodology, methodology, and so on. So that's really the change. I think the major change is like the level of interest. You know, like this has been <laughs> growing exponentially, yeah. right? Not just the people involved in the field but also the, instru- the interest from people outside the field, you know, from from media to, like, you know, again, political parties to, like, anyone you can think of has probably already heard of this term, visualisation, when 10 years ago, that was definitely not the case. So yeah. that's one positive aspect, just the growth of of sort of awareness of this, this, this discipline has grown a lot, considerably. Uh, I think partly... Due to the reason that it has been somehow attached to the big data phenomenon, this of mm-hmm. sort of news <laughs> first of interest for big data. So there's definitely a positive thing. I think you know, as the community grows, as more people get involved in this this battle for understanding, uh, I think there's a lot of benefits that can come from it. You know, because we need as many brains as possible to like face the challenges of this new society, this new sort of complex, interconnected world that we are living on. Uh, so that's a great thing. Uh, but of course, you know, with the growth of 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 a field, then you have aspects that are not so great. You know, like the the birth of this infographic with capital letters or or things like of, the, of that kind. <laughs>
0: I like that.
2: But but those are the I all think those are just infographic. Exactly, the all caps <laughs> infographic. Yeah, exactly. So, but I think all of that is just a byproduct of any field growing. There's always those kind of byproducts, which. For me, it's just only natural that those will occur and will continue occurring when it comes to the to the future i I really don't know i think one of the things I would like to see a lot more is and I think that's happening as technology also like follows us, which is you know leaving these small screens behind you know I think we are yeah. still very constrained and limited by the size of our screens, and that ultimately limits what we can do from a visualization standpoint and an interaction standpoint as well, right so Exploring like large platforms that we can sort of explore information in a much deeper immersive way. I think that could be definitely the future moving forward. And if we extrapolate that, you can think about, uh, you know, intelligence and sort of, you know, intelligence sort of systems and objects around us conveying information. Uh, you know, maybe the the color white on my wall right now is not white, just arbitrarily white, it's, it's probably conveying some level of information. Uh, then of course you have these deeply immersive systems like the the Allosphere. Have you guys heard of the Allosphere?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. In
2: the, mm-hmm. in the University of, of Santa, I've never been there. I wish I. I actually met the, the main researcher at one of the conferences a while back, but I never actually went there in person. But, but I would love that to go. To, I, I'm yeah. not aware of so, it. Yeah, so the Allosphere is like a two-story high sphere. In uh, they created in the University of, of Santa Barbara in California. And it's meant to be this like super high-tech, all-immersive uh, environment for visuali- visualizing different aspects of science. Uh, and the interesting thing is that they don't only visualize, but they play with other senses. So they play, I think, with sound, and they play with other things. So it's truly like an all-immersive, multisensorial experience. And I think those are signs of change that are really interesting to me when it comes to leaving these small screens behind and really getting ourselves immersed with uh, meaningful sort of information and, and, and data. Mm-hmm. I think those are the signs of, of, of uh, some future interest for me. Uh, and also I think when it comes to visual metaphors, one of the things I've been sort of realizing by doing a lot of this research is how many of the metaphors we consider to be new Uh, Created very recently are actually
0: quite old. None of them.
2: (laughs) None of them. Like if you think about you know arc diagrams that you know Martin Wattenberg famously sort of populated, uh, sort of uh, became sort of the the project became really famous by introducing this arc diagram metaphor. I think it was the Shape of Song. That metaphor has been used in medieval times to actually map guess what music, and there's like tons (laughs) of examples. Uh, when you think about tree maps, uh, of course, Ben Schneiderman invented the sort of the modern version of the tree map, uh, the, the one that can actually uh, sort of subdivide in multiple, multiple ways. He uh, created the algorithm that allows that uh, that sort of process to exist. But the idea of a tree map is much older. It goes back to you know, the 19th, if not the 18th century. So a lot of these metaphors that we somehow think are new and reflect this new age of visualization, many of them have, o- have also been exist- have, have existed for centuries. So I think that the next challenge for us is to get away of this cyclicality of reusing the same metaphor on and on and on. And somehow, and this is—I know—it's like it seems pretty easy to say, but I think yeah, we need hard challenges to solve. I think one of those hard challenges is like coming up with new visual metaphors that can really solve the problems that we are facing in a much better way. Mm-hmm. I think so a think lot of the visual- a- Yeah.
0: Sorry for interrupting. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, please. No, I'm just asking. So you you think that the design space is still so there are. Uh, parts of the design space that have not been explored yet
2: oh yes absolutely yeah there's so much more to explore absolutely I I, will, I would like to believe that's the case otherwise that's not like so much of a future uh, that you know the future prospect of like continuous sort of regurgitating the same metaphors is not super appealing to me <laughs> or, to, or to future generations, right? Yeah. I would imagine And then I would
1: be jobless are, too. I, mean. <laughs> yeah. I would I imagine. Don't know, but, in a, way, I mean, express, but so.
0: in a way you can see uh, maybe that's just the way humanity evolves, right? Every time an, uh, a new idea is just, uh, uh, yeah, repurposing an, an old idea, but every time we do that, we make it... Uh, more refined and maybe better right maybe that's the same with ideas themselves right that's a that's a great point. And you, you you're totally right, and I think that
2: might well. be I mean, the case.
0: if you look at history of philosophy yeah. or or whatever, even politics or ways to organize society, or I don't know. I think you can name Everything, so many yeah. different things. Fashion, right? fashion, yeah, <laughs> fashion, and and yeah. so on. So we maybe it's just in human nature the fact that we are reinventing stuff that have been invented already, but every time we do that, we do it in a different, in a slightly different way, or we learn something new. Or is just that it adapts to the new context? I don't know. I mean, no, I'm not I'm an expert on this topic. That's, that's a
2: super valid. That's a super valid point, and, and I think that's also the value of looking at history, which is something that I'm, I'm, you know, as you, as you guys probably can tell by now, I'm a strong advocate of history, because it allows us to really understand this cyclic, cyclical nature, these cyclical patterns of many disparate fields. And visualization is definitely one of those fields that's probably going to suffer from that same cyclical nature of of things evolving and okay. uh, you know' it's, it's almost like when you join when you join a new company right well I guess you guys are slightly independent but you know enrico like'd say or maurice let's say you would like to join a company tomorrow if you are involved in any sort of creative job, the first thing you want to know is okay, so what have you guys done in the past right, and yeah. You know, what what was uh, well received, if it was abandoned, why was it abandoned? Like, you want to have as much knowledge as possible so that when you try and propose something else, something new, it doesn't repeat the mistakes from the past. And I think that's the value of, of looking at history. You know, that's why societies, in many societies, the elders are held to such a high standard because they have that. Increasing sort of knowledge of past mistakes, and that's the only way we can evolve. And because we have that sort of collective memory, we are actually the only species that have this collective memory that you know that can adapt and change generation after generation. So, for me, that's really the value of 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 history that provides us that meaningful understanding of the cyclical nature of of of, of things and our and our subjects change and, and, you know, happen throughout uh, a lot of these, you know, very intrinsic patterns. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I mean, some things in culture and tradition are, are the way they are because they're universal principles and they just make sense, right? So maybe okay. the trees are a good example there. Um, <laughs> and other things are just like that because there's I don't know, there's certain technological limitations at a given time or there's just, yeah, stuff has happened and it's been repeated, but it doesn't have to be that way and so these things you can like start to question and sort of innovate on these so i'm i'm not so um um i think there, there's lots of space for innovation even if we all oh, play yeah. the same songs all over. <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: i agree i agree yeah. i would definitely like to hope so but I, yeah, yeah, yeah i definitely agree that's the case can you tell us a I bit think, what yeah. you're
1: doing now like you're working as, yeah, a, as sure. a user experience designer mostly is that right that's right. Well,
2: yeah, that's my, you know, nine to five, well, nine to uh, seven uh, job <laughs> at, at Code Academy. Yeah, so I'm, I'm leading a, a small team of, of product designers or UX designers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, trying to grow the team, hire more designers, uh, and, you know, really change and affect the, the product in a, in a positive way. We actually just launched a massive redesign of the products, uh, you know, from a branding standpoint, but also like a massive redesign of... Of uh, you know the interface, the the website, and so on. So mm-hmm. it's a really really interesting challenge because you have a lot of you have a chance for like great impact, uh, and it's very direct. You know you don't have like all the layers of decision making and sort of bureaucracy that you have in other places. Yeah. So the impact is like straight.
1: Yeah, if you change something uh, on the fast. website, people will complain or <laughs> like it or not. And, and, <laughs> it's, uh, exactly, yeah. exactly.
2: And it's so fast. I think that's one of the things that. It's it's really this idea when we come when we talk about creative creativity and technology and look upon the future. Mm-hmm. I think startups are so interesting sort of phenomenons because they allow us to like uh, sort of try and fail really fast. You know, like try, yeah. fail, learn from that mistake, and then like repeat it and change it. You know, change one small component every time, and that's the best way to learn. That's the best way to sort of evolve. And large companies don't. Have that luxury. That's why they are so slow to adapt. Sure, That's why sure. they're so yeah. sort of, um, you know, big, small, uh, big sort of uh, big st- slow elephants, um, which makes it really harder to, to compete with all those you know new startups. Right, right. And so yeah, what do you you say? How
1: does your like your experiences from the visualization things and visual complexity? How does it influence your job? Is that more like the one thing is play and the other one is work, or do you (laughs) see a lot of parallels like between these worlds? Like how does it fit together?
2: Yeah, they've always like been separate, and Mm -hmm. I never intentionally sort of. uh, I never intentionally try to merge them. Uh, maybe there's that that aspect of you know if you start having lobster every single day, you might get sick of it. <laughs> so there is that element of there is that element of like you know leaving something that you really like as a hobby you know that mm-hmm. you do on the side because that's you know where your passion is is coming from. That's kind of like your free sort of private moment that you have to yourself. So there's something really interesting about that, but at the same time. I have to say, and you probably know this pretty well, Moritz, because I think your background is actually interaction design. There's a lot of overlaps between visualization, data visualization, and interaction design and UX design. I think you know, a lot of the UX principles that we have, universal principles of design like you know flexibility versus usability trade-off, you know, things like progressive disclosure, things like X-law, the, the principle of chunking, uh, I don't know, like signal to noise ratio, uh, the 80 20 rule. Yeah, I right. mean, all those universal principles are equally relevant on interaction design and UX design as they are for information visualization. Right. So I think from a, from a sort of a knowledge point of view, that knowledge is shareable, right, between the disciplines. It's mm-hmm. only the practice that might change a little bit, but you're kind of like driven by very similar sort of, again, goals and, and principles in many different ways.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and I'd actually like to see more influx from the UX world into into information visualization. I mean, I myself always a bit defensive there. So whenever I meet a user experience designer, I'm always like, yeah, you know, database, it works a bit different. You know, it's not, <laughs> no, nah, you can't do it the same way. But as you say, a lot of stuff is overlapping, you know? It's just like, we yeah. like to be these special uh, ponies. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, 90% is universal design principles, right? And yeah, yeah absolutely. so I'd like to see more, more influence from the user experience people in the Infobis world, actually.
2: I agree. I agree. I think there's a huge overlap there that we could, we should capitalize upon. I think, you know, even, even the, even the audience that you have. Uh, <laughs> there's noise in the background. <laughs> it's your okay, kid, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It's uh, I'm <laughs> visiting. <laughs>
2: no, it's <laughs> uh well, yeah, but even the audience, like the what, one of the things that I like about visualization, you guys probably feel the same, is the diversity of backgrounds that you have in this community, right? And the UX somehow feels a, a little bit like that as well. Probably not as diverse, I would say, maybe as visualization. But still, you tend to have people from you know, psychology, cognitive science, you know, from, uh, from computer science. So there's quite a diversity there as well, which I think is, is, is important to, to any discipline.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I personally believe that there is so much more to do in terms of interaction design there. Right. Because most, most visualizations out there, they are not very interactive anyway. <laughs> and right?
1: I mean, <laughs> yeah, or use really obscure interaction techniques without even explaining them. Like something you wouldn't <laughs> get away with as a UI or yeah. UX designer. Everybody would yeah. be like, What the fuck is
0: going on here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And, yeah, and but my my guess is that as we as visualization turns more and more interactive, then we will find ourselves adopting more of these rules that that have been there for ages from interaction design, right?
2: Yes. Well, yeah, I certainly hope so, and and I think we we I talk about this all the time, and I think you know, you know, in a given class, you know, I I might say to my students, hey, interact interaction is key, but it doesn't solve everything. You know, you cannot just oh, no, rely sure. on interaction to like you know just. Can for interaction can actually be a
0: crutch,
2: right? Yeah, exactly. That's why I actually I remember like um, bringing uh, to one of my classes. I decided to intentionally bring Georgia Lupi, uh, as oh, you guys yeah. both know, yeah. to the class to show that you know you can achieve great work and provide a great level of insight without one single interactive element on the screen. In this case, on paper. Right. So I think it's you know interaction can also be uh, can be somehow. Um, this mystified in a way which because it's not it's not it's not the, the solution that solves all our problems but still there's issues and and complex networks is one of them that if you don't embrace some level of interactivity it becomes really really hard to do any sort of meaningful visualization of a given network especially a really large one so i think it's it's yeah but like you're saying and i think we can learn a lot from those you know from cognitive science from interaction design from ux design because we actually share a lot of interesting principles uh, universal design principles that are equally benefit for for all the disciplines.
0: Yeah. And I think as we start as you said before, as as we start moving our visualizations to different devices and environments, that's gonna be a key component there, right?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, traction then it's gonna become a, the norm, right? The de facto yeah. sort of way yeah. of exploring uh, yeah
0: data and information for sure. So uh, should we wrap it up? We've yeah. been talking for, wow, more than one hour now. Wow! Uh, I don't know, Moritz. You have other questions that you want to ask to Manuel?
1: oh no not really it's super super interesting i i loved yeah. the the time trip it, it, it took me down to memory lane <laughs> <again> myself <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's good that's we didn't good mention thing. the manifesto so our people oh, so yeah. if you haven't read the manifesto uh post we yeah. link it it's it's really good and it's fun because it's five years old and i think a lot of the discussion around <laughs> that manifesto yeah. still resonates and is still like largely unresolved and i think it's <laughs> That that was really an interesting um, an interesting point, and uh, Dep- Dep- so yeah. we'll link that one, and you can send us comments, um, or maybe yeah. we have to do a follow up with Manuel on the manifesto. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Special, yeah,
2: especially on aesthetics. I think that was the most contentious yeah. issue. Of, How of far the can you manifesto? go? And
1: form follows function, oh, yeah. or form follows oh, data? Oh or, yeah, or, that was yeah. yeah,
2: that was the genesis of the whole conversation. That was,
1: yeah. Horrible, oh. horrible. Oh, in that sense,
2: I can leave you guys with like one of my favorite quotes when it comes to aesthetics, which is this uh, this Dutch designer Wim uh, Wim uh, Crowell, that said, "I'm a functionalist troubled by aesthetics. and I think that's that's very much how I feel. Uh, I feel exactly like this, like him, right? I I'm a, I'm a functionalist, but always constantly troubled, tormented by aesthetics.
0: Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but I think the, that manifesto was, was great. So w- before starting the episode, we had a little chat, and I and I said, Manuel, didn't you write this kind of information visualization manifesto so many years ago, right? And then we checked, and it was 2009, right? Right, right. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and if today you read nobody it, writes and
1: manifestos anymore. Everybody's <laughs> like, yeah, know, whatever, you know, it's, it's like... You know, I like, mean, yeah. just the idea itself Coast, of
0: writing one chaos, was, was great, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I think remember at that time <laughs> <laughs> I was so much influenced by that. That that was great.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thanks, man. Yeah, and, I think and it, some it, of it yeah. sounds
0: still so. I mean, so important. I actually like every single point you wrote. It's still very relevant. Start with a question. Interactivity is key. Cite your source. The power of narrative. Man, you you wrote these things in 2009. <laughs> it's still so important. No, thank you. Good stuff.
1: And so, uh, is there a third book coming up? Yeah, I was going to ask the same <laughs> thing. Uh-huh. I mean, That's two surprise. books, that sounds like a uh, good imbalance, right? Two books. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Let's put it this way. I, I need a break. <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely have ideas about the third book. Uh, but it's too early to say. Uh, uh-huh. But I'm probably going to take a break and just like get some... Some time to uh, I don't know to spend to enjoy life a little bit because this is like you know putting a book together. It's like really one of the most time-consuming uh, things you can do in your life. So as much as I like it, it's still very exhausting. So. I, I definitely have ideas for a third one, but it's probably going to be uh, on the back burner for, for a bit, uh, no, for a bit no, of time. Let's
1: first do the week of celebrations in 2015 for VC. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then you can start your book later on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. If you
0: start guessing, Moritz, it's going to be what? The book of sets. The book uh, of <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's an interesting question. Yeah,
1: sets are a good topic. Actually,
0: the book of, you know. well, you can focus on so many mm. things. Timelines. Book of time.
1: No, oh,
2: that there's been a book about
1: there's that. There's cartographies actually. of time, which is oh, cartographies yeah, of time. I
2: pretty much love killed that. it already. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a really good one.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> all right. Cool. All yeah. Right. Let us hope know.
2: So. Yeah. Of course, of course. I will yeah. keep you guys posted for sure.
1: Cool, cool.
0: <laughs> and thanks so
1: much for being on the show. It's, it's been fantastic. I hope yeah, sure people will enjoy Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for
2: everything. Yeah. yeah. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Manuel. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye, guys.